Welcome to Anthony Plogue on Music. I'm Tony Plogue, and today my guest is trumpeter extraordinaire Rex Richardson. This podcast is brought to you by Dorico, the music notation and composition software from Steinberg. Dorico is a family of products for iPad, Mac OS, and Windows, and you can get started for free with Dorico for iPad in the App Store or Dorico SE for Mac OS and Windows. I'm really proud to have Dorico sponsor the podcast because I use it in my own composing and engraving, and I find it indispensable. In future episodes, I'll be telling you more about Dorico and how I use it. My producer and tech guy, Eddie Ludema, also uses Dorico. As a tech person, Eddie can make use of the most sophisticated features of Dorico, while I'm, well, just on the opposite side of the tech spectrum. Even so, I can use the most basic elements of Dorico and still easily produce a beautiful-looking score. In other words, you don't have to be technically skilled to use Dorico successfully. Oh, and my publisher, Editions Mim, also uses Dorico. Dorico is used in many of the world's top music schools by leading publishers and by renowned composers and artists. You can install Dorico for iPad or Dorico SE or experience the full power of Dorico Pro with a completely free 30-day trial. Visit www.dorico.com to learn more. When in 2011, Rex Richardson was awarded the Teresa Pollock Prize for Excellence in the Arts, the prize selectors wrote, quote, Richardson stands at the vanguard of jazz, classical, and contemporary American music. As his star has risen internationally, he's maintained a clear commitment to education. He is an extraordinary musician. End quote. How true, and so it is a pleasure to have Rex as a guest on this podcast. In part one of our conversation, we first discuss Rex's beginnings as a trumpet player and musician, and then move on to a discussion of jazz and improvisation. So, Dr. Rex Richardson, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Herr Tony Plogue, Herr <laughs> Professor. You know, I I, uh, I had I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that you got a doctorate. I know you got a bachelor's degree in anthropology, yeah. but you actually have a doctorate to your name. It kind of happened by accident where I, um, 1998 was a very strange year for me. It's when I, I met um, a young lady who lived in Baton Rouge in July of that year. And in August of that year, uh, I'd been touring with Joe Henderson and Joe, he did his last concert basically. And within a few weeks after that, we realized he was not, he, he was too sick to tour anymore. So I felt kind of bummed out about, about that and a little bit disillusioned about New York. Cause the weird thing about my New York experience had been that I'd moved there and was already touring with Rhythm of Brass and with Joe and uh, kind of immediately as I moved there and then, um, some, some solo stuff. So I didn't get time to really kind of be in the community and become part of it. So, um, and then I've kind of had fallen head over heels for this young lady who was in Baton Rouge. So I decided to move there. And it turns out they had a jazz assistantship so I could start a master's in classical trumpet and teach jazz, which at the time I had no idea how to do because I'd never studied jazz formally. So that was quite, <laughs> that was quite an experience. But um, at a certain point, you know, I was an older student. I was uh, 29, I think, when I started. So I was just, and I had reps, so I was just plowing through the recitals. And then they said, well, if you start a doctorate, we can triple your assistantship. And I hadn't really thought about getting a, a doctorate, but I said, well, you know, my only income right now is just uh, touring and some lessons and my assistantship, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take it, you know. And uh, once I got into it, I decided to, to finish it. But I, 
I did it in a way that was not recommended. I was really uh, rushed. I mean, I did the, I was trying to finish everything in time to follow this lady whom I'd become engaged to uh, before she left for her next uh, university to go to. She ended up going to Rice for grad school. So, so I did both degrees except for the final paper in two and a half years total. So not, not recommended, I would say, for, for most people. I didn't, I didn't sleep and, you know, wasn't exercising, didn't, you know, it was, it was miserable. It was terrible. And then the engagement, we, we got engaged and fell apart like that last semester before I left too. So, and then um, wow, okay. I got to go to Ithaca College to teach her for a semester and then went to VCU to take this job. And um, a few years later, I spent a semester kind of doing the final lecture recital. So 2006 is when I, I uh, finished the Doctor of Musical Arts. And did you have to do a thesis as well? It was, um, yeah, the, you know, I was starting to do kind of a dissertation, but it, it made more sense for me as someone who was, uh, shall we say, a little more of a performer than a scholar uh, to do a, a lecture recital with documents, as I called it. So I ended up having about a 75-page document. And the project was fun for me, at least the research part, because it was a harmonic analysis of the uh, improvisational approaches of Freddie Hubbard and Woody Shaw. Um Putting it together in a quasi-book form was not as, as fun, uh, but it was a great learning experience, and I was lucky they let me do something like that for my classical trumpet degree. You know? So before we get started, I want to talk about your early career and how you started on trumpet and everything, but I'd first like to, to tell you why I think you're a real hero, and that is, I think trumpet players don't even know this about you, but you, you told me this, you taught one time up in Oslo when I was in, teaching in Oslo, Norway. And we were talking, and you told me you're a vegetarian, and you told me that when you're in Richmond, when you're in town, uh, you and your wife will go to a dog pound once a week and take a dog out for a walk. Is that correct? Yeah, we were doing it at the time. This, there's a shelter, it was called Bark. It was, uh, that was an acronym for a pretty elaborate name. I can't remember exactly. But we used to go, uh, whenever I was in town on Fridays, we'd go, and usually there would be multiple dogs. We would walk and we'd have to clean the kennels. And it was fun. It was also sometimes a bit uh, dangerous. Some of the dogs were kind of troubled. So we both got uh, bit a few times. And But unfortunately, the shelter is no longer uh, functional. So we, we have a couple of rescue dogs and we keep kind of, uh, we're probably going to get a third soon. But we don't, we don't actually interact with that shelter anymore because uh, they close the doors, unfortunately. Anyway, I think that's great. I think, you know, people think of, of Rex Richardson, the trumpet player, and they don't realize there's another side of you that's that's maybe even better than the trumpet <laughs> player, you know, just to do something like that. I think it's great. Yeah, thanks, Tom. So, appreciate that. Yeah. Um, well, let's start sort of at the beginning. I think it was 14 you started trumpet, and, and the teacher who really influenced you was uh, Dennis Edelbrock? Yeah, I actually got a horn when I was 10, but I didn't really do much with it. Um, I was starting to get interested a little bit, maybe in eighth grade, and then it was my freshman year in high school when we moved to this area, actually, where I'm, I'm at my, my mom's house right now in Burke, Virginia, in the D.C. suburbs, and Denny Edelbrock was uh, in the Army Brass Quintet at the time, and he just happened to be one of the best teachers in the entire state, and uh, I had no idea. He just came in and taught lessons at my high school, but uh, he was he was huge for me. I don't think I would have figured out how to play if it weren't for Denny because I was terrible at the time. <laughs> well, you said you were really, you'd really muscle your way through passages. Yeah, I mean, I could do, 
I could do some things on the horn, like high register stuff, maybe even kind of some athletic stuff, but it was all muscle. It sounded terrible. And Denny uh, managed to convince me to, you know, release the death grip on the horn and start to develop flexibility. And that, uh, that kind of changed everything for me. And he knew, he knew that's exactly what I needed. He never really talked to me about chops. He just gave me the exercises to, to train my chops and to release attention and really got me thinking about listening. He started me doing score study when I was about that age, you know, introduced me to box music and Mahler's music. So he was, yeah, he was an incredible mentor for me. Wow. And you were actually studying scores when you were in high school. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, you know, I would, I would go to the library, check out scores and records and, and books. I kind of went nuts for Mahler when I was about 14. So I learned all I could back then. And I often couldn't afford to buy the records, but I could always get some from the library. So that was a thing. So you did, you actually studied Mahler in high school. That's, that's pretty amazing. I didn't even know who Mahler was when I was in high well, school. Well, I was, you know, I was lucky, first of all, to have Denny as a teacher and also to be where I was in the kind of the shadow of the D.C. music scene. Um, almost everyone around here had a, a trumpet teacher because there were dozens of great trumpet players in all the service bands. And, of course, it was the National Symphony. There were great youth orchestras and even youth, youth brass ensembles to play in. So everywhere I went to play, there was another someone else to teach me another teacher or another fellow student so yeah i was exposed to a lot that i i would not have been if we had not moved to this area so i was i feel like i was i was really lucky and and you progressed to the state where you were able to get into northwestern and did you audition in person or i did, did that's that kind work? of a funny story too because um i was doing kind of a circuit if i remember correctly we had auditions at northwestern and in indiana and illinois University of Illinois Champaign, um, I think it was the same weekend. But there was a massive snowstorm when I was going to fly out, and it canceled all the flights. So my dad's like, hey, we're just, we're going to drive. So we drove through horrible blizzard to get to Northwest and drove all the way through the night. It took, you know, <clears throat> it should be usually maybe a 14-hour drive from Northern Virginia, and I think it took uh, well over 24 hours, so. I showed up to play for Chickowitz and I was a zombie, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> it wasn't the most stellar audition. I, I didn't think I'd gotten in, but, and then uh, we made the circuit to play for uh, Mike Tunnel and Ray Sasaki at Illinois, and I played for Alan Dean and, and company at Indiana. So it was all around that, that oh. same trip, yeah. Did you have to play for, for your audition or auditions? Did you have to play sort of the same sort of, material and was it mainly orchestral excerpts or solo literature you know I, to be honest with you, i don't really remember i remember i liked playing pick when i was in high school so i i, I wanted i think i might have been playing the credo for the b minor mass as part of my audition for pick and um maybe something that would show you know i was playing some tomasi back then but maybe aritunian tomasi something like that and, and maybe a few excerpts I imagine they had slightly different requirements, but it was a long time ago. I don't, I don't remember the exact details. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But while at Northwestern, and you changed your major from music to anthropology yeah. uh, for for several different reasons. And and I remember you saying that, that um, in anthropology, it was actually sort of interesting for you. Now, you had one class in particular that sounded extremely interesting, and I forget the name of it now, what, what it was. It was called Culture and Madness. Yeah. It's one of the coolest courses I've ever taken, yeah. 
Still remember that. Yeah, and and, and does that relate to trumpet playing at all? Or <laughs> it might, at least indirectly. You yeah, know. Uh, trumpet playing and madness—it's almost uh, you know a lot of overlap there, I'd say. But yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, this was about uh, the way it, it focused on schizophrenia and the way we perceive it in Western culture and the way people who would probably be diagnosed with schizophrenia and other cultures were, were treated like they're often the shamans or the spiritual leaders. And, you know, we feel like we assume they're seeing stuff we can't because they're crazy. And they assume that they're seeing stuff we can't because they're gifted. So that whole context was pretty interesting to explore, you know, pretty fascinating. That is actually, I would think that maybe even with some extremely talented jazz players, not classical players, but jazz players who maybe just play to sort of a different different time zone or something. Yeah, yeah, you've... Uh, it could be considered that yeah, way. Yeah, quite possibly. I, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, I um, hadn't tied in directly so much with, with music, but of course we've had lots of colorful figures in every facet of music history and every genre, and you, you wonder sometimes what some of those folks are going through, and they're often diagnosed uh you know after the fact but you know we think of figures like uh in, in speaking of jazz you know miles davis and charlie parker even woody shaw i mean freddie all those guys were you know challenging people in certain ways <laughs> yeah and you wonder what yeah, exactly sure. they were they were where they were dealing with and but um, yeah, it was a, it was a fascinating class, and uh, I, I remember it fondly to this day. What was the what is the psychological term, and, I, and it's very prevalent today, and it just skipped my mind right now. Um, where somebody will have really, and it's not manic depressive, but you'll have some really very high highs, and then some extremely low lows. Yeah, um, bipolar disorder, I think is bipolar. Is a yeah, term yeah, and I, I read an article about that, and a lot of really creative people in the past, including Gustav Mahler as an example. Um, psychiatrists now think he was bipolar. So yeah, and so that in his up, you know, stages that he could just write this incredibly great music. I'm sure that has not been totally tested yet, but it's an interesting concept. Yeah, it's got to be difficult to, you, you know, look at all the facts you have and try to do a diagnosis without being able to interview one of these Historical figures, of course, but... Uh, yeah, that would sure be interesting. Yeah, fascinating questions, for sure. So I'd like to talk, um, before we get to rhythm and blues, I'd like to talk about that. Sorry, rhythm and brass. Um, <laughs> and that is um, jazz and how you learn jazz. And, and we'll get to this, start at the beginning, but one thing for sure I want you to cover is you said that you had a, a tendency early on to just try play a lot of fast notes and you sort of didn't know what you were doing and to try and go back to the basics, you would play solos where you would just play quarter notes. And I don't see how you were able to do that, but start at the beginning and then work your way up there. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I played a little bit of jazz in high school, but not really. I was really zoned in on, on classical playing and thought maybe I was going to end up being an orchestral player. You know, I would go home and listen to my... Freddie Hubbard and, and Woody Shaw records and all these, all these, you know, every trumpet player imaginable that I was checking out, you know. But it wasn't until I got to uh, Northwestern that I started actually trying to figure out how to improvise. And, yeah, one of the problems was that I, I, I did, my, my facility developed more quickly than my musicianship. <laughs> uh, so I 
I don't have that much more technique now than I did when I was 17 or 18. For some reason, it just it, that came super quick. Uh, but actually knowing what I was doing would, did not come as fast. So on the jazz side, I would employ this facility with no ability to play chord changes or having any idea how the language worked or play with good feel. Any, any of the things that you like to hear in a good jazz solo, I, I couldn't do. But I could do a lot of it. So... <laughs> Um, I think strong and wrong would be the best way to describe my how I was as a soloist when I was young. And, you know, I would get feedback from older musicians because most of what I learned, I, I was mostly just self-taught. I would grab a lesson here and there. Like I got a couple lessons from Brad Good, you know, who's a, a very well-known trumpet player who was in Chicago at the time and now is teaching at uh, UC Boulder. And um, I'd go to jam sessions and play terribly and ask questions of the musicians. They tell me what to study and they'd say, Hey man, go listen to this person or this artist, whatever. And, and, you know, I'd make the mistake of learning a tune only out of the real book, which is fairly new at the time, instead of from the recording. And people can tell when I'd done that and they would call me out and I'd go back and find the recording. So it was like a very haphazard process, but it was really, it was pretty late in the game when I realized, hey, man, you're still just a total sad jazz jazz player. I mean, I was 22 when I just had a record. I still remember the moment I was playing with an Abersol play along. It was on a record back then, um, the Charlie Parker uh, play along. And I was playing terribly. And I knew it. And I got angry at myself. And there was a blizzard outside because it's wintertime in Evanston, Illinois. I think I might have actually lived in Chicago at the time. And I just went out walking under the blizzard and decided, you know, I had this, you know, this moment of reckoning, decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to figure out how to play. I'm gonna... And so one of the first things I did is, is started to limit myself to very, very slow note values. I had to kind of strip down everything to make sure, first of all, that I was playing with good feel and I was in the right key at the right time. Stuff that basic. This started a process that lasted really three years where I I was completely immersed in jazz and I was still practicing my fundamentals. I didn't really have lessons after the age of 19. So that that caused some other issues because even when I, when I went to grad school, I'd already, you know, I was already a professional trumpet player. So Jim West, who was amazing for me at LSU, he was teaching me pedagogy, really. He wasn't teaching me trumpet so much. Um, but I immersed myself in jazz and didn't really study classical music for three years. And I came out on the other other end of it with a lot more competence and probably would have at that point I think I just considered myself a jazz trumpet player I would have been 25 at the time and then I got that call from Rhythm of Brass which is maybe another chapter of the <laughs> of the story here but that's what actually got me back into playing classical music with with uh, um, any degree of seriousness really you know when I uh, years ago when I played with the Utah Symphony uh, the principal trumpet player was Bill Sullivan, who was just a really wonderful person. And he told me the story of one night in Salt Lake City. Um, I guess Dizzy Gillespie had played the night before, and he was supposed to fly out of town, and there was a blizzard. And so he got snowed in, and that night was Woody Herman's band. Oh. And so Dizzy Gillespie sat in with Woody Herman's wow. band, and they started training fours. And the fourth trumpet player you know, started and, and it was, it was pretty fast and, and uh, you know, pretty fast. <laughs> and then the, the third trumpet player was more virtuosic, second trumpet player even more so, and the, the first trumpet player went wild. And then it came to Dizzy, and he just sort of went, foul, ba-do-pa, foul, 
only played a few notes yeah. and it was just basically was saying hey chill man and 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 bill said this swung so much more than these guys playing all of their notes right exactly and i think it's i think it is i think the person that can say a lot with very few notes is yeah exactly and, and, way ahead of the and, game and it's it's the kind of thing where i think people kind of can take extreme positions either way like you know the the hyper virtuosos those are the greatest players or the the players that play extremely simple, the greatest musicians, but it's really, the fact is it's, it's essentially equal. It's just different. You know what I mean? Which is why uh, I think for me, it's like, I always want my students to check out as many different kinds of trumpet players as, as possible. So someone like Chet Baker, who was famous, who also was a virtuoso, but often played very, very simple. That's kind of what he was most famous for. You get so many of the best lessons, but then when you hear, Someone like Freddie Hubbard, who was kind of on the other end of the spectrum, who's really kind of a freak of a virtuoso trumpet player. I don't know if I've ever come across a trumpet player in any genre who had more facility than Freddie Hubbard, you know. But to me, they're, they're both heroes of mine, you know. I found in my own, in terms of how I physically connect to the horn, people like Freddie and Woody just kind of made more sense to me. It was harder for me to play like Chet or Miles in his earlier period when he was playing more simple so I realized on the one hand, well, I gotta, I gotta play the way it feels right for me to play, but I also have to learn all the lessons from the folks who play differently than I do, and that's the way I can become a more well-rounded musician and be able to find that balance. You know, bring the energy when you're supposed to, and 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 bring it down when you when it's, you know, when it's not supposed to be there, and really kind of being tuned into the musical context all the time, and which is a reason why I think we have to be tuned into as many players as possible to to really get the full history of the music. I think that applies to every genre, really. So when you switch back between improvisation and written notation, do you feel a sort of like mental shift? Like you go into an altered mental state? Yeah, it's it's a, a different process for sure. I, I tend to think of it as, well, really what I learned is that I, I wanted to play written music a little more like I was improvising. Because as I, mm -hmm. as I got into improvisation, it... I started noticing with some of my favorite classical performers that they play with a degree of commitment and naturalness that felt like it was improvised. So, you know, people like Hoke and Hardenberger, you know, he puts every note is just like, you know, he puts a solo into it. Someone like Yo-Yo Ma, all the soloists I enjoy seem to have that quality. So what I try to do is, insofar as it's possible is put myself in the improviser's mindset when I'm playing written music. It depends on the role, too. Sometimes I don't get to do a lot of ensemble stuff these days, uh, certainly not a lot of large ensemble stuff, just playing with the Brass Band of Battle Creek a couple times a year, but when I do get to do that, obviously that's a different role. And you know, you're trying to fit into a larger hole, and, and uh, your improvisatory uh, splendor is probably less important <laughs> in that sense. But certainly, you know, most of what I do these days is, is in, a, in a solo setting, and I certainly want that quality of improvisation but yeah it's, it's a different headspace and what i find it's not necessarily a constant shift but i i can feel if i'm out of shape one way or the other and typically on the classical side i feel almost more physically out of shape like i lose a touch like this the more the more um subtle elements of playing i need and on the jazz side i lose the mental state more like i start thinking too much about what i'm doing and i lose a sense mm -hmm. of flow so it's a it's a different headspace, but to be honest with you, I, I don't 
notice that much of a difference unless it's going badly. <laughs> That's when I notice yeah, something right. is not shifted uh, the way it's supposed to. Just recently, uh, and it's not out yet, but uh, we interviewed uh, Ludwig Holtmeyer, who's the rector at the Musikhochschule in, in Freiburg, mm. who's who's a real scholar. And he was saying that during the time of Chopin and Liszt, uh, when students would practice, they would spend much more time practicing improvisation and sight reading. How about that? And I said... Oh, oh, really? And he said, yeah, it's sort of the way a jazz player practices today. And so that's like just reversing the trend in a way. It's very interesting how, it, how it's worked. Yeah, it sure is. Absolutely. So, well, one thing in terms of impro- improvisation that you've talked about, and I wonder if you could define it a little more specifically than when I heard it, and that is you talk about structural perfection, like the jazzers that you really admire when they will take a solo, they have this structural perfection. Could you... Describe what that means. Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, there's a story that's told that makes sense to the listener. You know, so if, if you think about what we deal with in, in basically all kinds of Western art forms, if we're talking about anything from a short story to a novel to a, a TV show episode to a movie, there's, there's a structure there. There's the introduction of the elements and then there's a sense of development conflict is introduced and then it resolves and then you might have a little epilogue of some sort and i think a great jazz solo will usually have the same elements how you get there maybe can vary quite a bit um, but there's there's always a sense of some kind of drama or development created in a solo that will pull you know, a listener who's, a pay, who's paying attention, if they're not paying attention, what, what can you do, you know? But someone who's actually kind of engaged will kind of feel like they're following this this story that kind of lives in this abstract zone of, of jazz improvisation. And they feel like they've had an experience by the time it's done. And the thing is, it's something in, in a band setting, which is obviously the vast majority of what where we hear jazz improvisation, it can't just be the soloist alone. So... If you've got someone who's playing the most brilliant stuff ever, but the, the rhythm section's checked out and they're not participating in the structure of the solo, then it, it's going to tend to fall a bit flat. But if you have the, the musicians, in particular the drummer, but everyone kind of aware of what where's the energy of the solo, where's it, where's it going, where's the pacing, the phrasing, if they're playing with the soloist and the whole band is creating this sense of narrative, and that's usually going to be something quite exhilarating for a listener. So broadly speaking... That's what I mean. There's sort of an architecture that mirrors mirrors the structure of just about any kind of art form that we think of, especially again in our in our broader Western tradition, as having the sense of a problem is is introduced and through this development it's resolved and and then you kind of wrap it up at the end, you know. Yeah. So that so suppose like like if you have for movies or TV. Uh, writers all the time talk talk about Act One, Act Two, Act Three. Exactly. Or you could say Sonata Allegro form or ABA form or something like that. So if you would take a, a let's say a, a great ensemble, small ensemble with a great soloist, and let's say you you analyze it and they're doing an ABA form, for example, okay, at the time that they're doing that, um, is it just intuitive that they're doing that, or or how much are they? In other words. How much are you thinking? You talked about not thinking. I would assume that that's something that you've practiced 
over and over and over again so that when you actually are playing, you're just free and you just instinctively respond to what the drummer's doing and the drummer responds to what you're doing. And somehow you magically create this ABA form or act one, two, three form or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it sounds sort of mystical and in a way it sort of is, but in a way it's probably very practical. It, it, too. Well, if you think of the tradition of say of improvised poetry going all the way to like what the rap battles these days, you know, like I, there's a movie, you know, Eminem's movie, eight mile that I recommend to, oh, uh-huh. you know, so obviously I got to, if I recommend it to younger students, I'd say there's a lot of profanity, just, you know, <laughs> but it's also an amazing example of, I mean, what they're doing is jazz to me, it, you know, because it, it exists in a language that they're, that they're sharing. It, there's a vocabulary, there's a grammatical structure, there's a whole idea of making sense. There's a structure that un- unfolds, and yet it's improvised. It might not have been in the in the film necessarily, but generally this is how it's, it's done. And... So it's it's the same kind of process where to someone who doesn't do it, I think it, it does seem like a, a mystical process. I mean, I I could never do it and, you know, do what they're doing. And I I know English fairly well, you know, but I couldn't do the improvisation, improvisational element with the rhyming and the, the rhythmic vibe. So something similar is happening. What tends to be different about jazz from a lot of other art forms is that you have this. So when you say A-A-B-A, lots of times that's going to be the form of a chorus. So let's say we're playing over a 32-bar song. Those structures are already in the chorus. So there may be an A section, eight measures, another A section, eight measures, a bridge, you know, which is maybe a B section, eight measures, and another A section or A prime or something. So we don't tend to think of the larger structure of a solo necessarily having those kinds of delineations because we tend to think of them as within a, a single chorus. But a solo might take multiple choruses. So it's across a larger structure. So the way it might play out is like you start off maybe with a little more space and a little more relaxed, and then you might use a, a number of different um, a, a number of different devices to create a sense of development or drama. Whether it's playing more in the high register, playing faster, playing more jagged intervals, or more harmonically adventurous stuff, more chromatic. And, and the rhythm section, if they're tuned in with you, will kind of drive that energy too. So this is the kind of thing where maybe if you play four choruses, you know, it's like near the end of the third chorus is when you have the, the biggest climax, perhaps, and then it kind of winds down on the last chorus, something like that. So you could analyze that after the fact. Maybe it's like, oh, this sort of represents an AABA or something that has some sort of, um, in particular, I think that you can find a lot of parallels or sonata form. Um, but the musicians, I think, normally are not, they're not thinking about that concretely. It's more of a sense, it's a thing you absorb from studying lots of solos, hearing a lot of solos, um, getting practice with a lot of bands, and, and just seeing what works over time. But I think it takes a long time to really develop a sense for that. Yeah. Have you ever had times when you've wanted to talk to the drummer, or actually had to talk to the drummer, like, hey, try and pay attention? I, I have, yeah. And it's... um. How did that go? Oh, you know, I'm always polite about it. And and, and it's rare with um, professional players, but it's sometimes as I'm, if I'm playing as a guest soloist with um, a college band or something, I'll, I'll just say, hey, you know, give me more of your, you know, your... And the way I... What I tend to do is invite them to be more of a participant in my solos. And I tell them, usually the other solos too, you know, whoever's playing on whatever tunes I'm playing, I say, help them, help them create the structure. 
and it's going to be a lot more successful. Because a lot of times drummers don't do that because they don't feel like they're supposed to. You know, one of the first things a lot of great drummers learn is, well, kind of don't overwhelm what's happening. Stay out of the way. But sometimes they go too far. And, and really, depending on the setting, ideally, they're figuring out just how much to push and how much to, you know, uh, how much of a role to have in the, in the, in the construction of a, of a solo, quote unquote. You know, it's not, if we think of it that way, it's not so much a solo. It's more of a, a chamber music-like kind of a creation of, of structure. But yeah, it's, um, it's tough sometimes, especially the younger drummers are not always sure what to do. They don't know what I want. And maybe if they play that way, I'm going to turn them in. Tell them to you know simmer down or something. So, <laughs> so it's it's rarely any kind of a real negative thing. I just will usually encourage them to say, hey, you know, you can give me more. You can be more involved in the overall creation of the structure of this tune, especially mm-hmm. the solos. Well, if I suppose like you were going to teach me jazz, okay, um, which would be a losing cause, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> in terms of teaching jazz, you talk about the three prong approach. Could you yeah. explain that? Sure. I, I think of it, this is pretty uncontroversial. I think probably most jazz musicians and, and pedagogues would agree with some form of this. But you've got, broadly speaking, you've got the theory and the harmony. So when you kind of learn the nuts and bolts of the structure of the music. And then the second prong, if you will, is, is transcription. That's like taking in information by ear and analyzing it, making sense of it. And the third prong is actually doing enough improvisation that you start to get a sense of flow and, and having time to practice the lessons you're getting from the first two prongs, so to speak, you know, from the, the theory and harmony lessons, which to me includes, you know, trying to master scales and how they uh, correlate to chords and also language that you're taking from transcription. So all three of these areas kind of inform each other and need to be in balance for someone, I think, to really progress with their, um, to, to have their, their best success as, a, as an improviser. So ask, answer something for me, because this is something I got just from a recent in- interview with Jack Ellis, who's a friend of mine, and he's played with Frank Zappa and a lot of other people. And he was saying when he improvises, he talks about the difference between riding the crest of a wave, where things are really going great, versus relying on licks. And he said, you can tell when somebody's relying on licks. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, sure. Well, it's, it's also, I, I think what happens for most experienced jazz musicians is they have a vocabulary they've developed. Um, because it's just like anything else. If, if you, You'll hear some trumpet players playing some stuff that's extremely technically difficult to play on the trumpet. And that usually doesn't kind of come out of thin air. You know, there's there's what they tend to do is they practice patterns and things they've learned and modified from other musicians. And lots of times it'll come out maybe a little bit different in the improvisation. So it's kind of a lick, but kind of not, you know. So most great improvisations are going to be some kind of a combination of some learned vocabulary that's adapted for the situation in terms of tempo and key and maybe a little bit different rhythmic shape here and there versus some things that are really happening spontaneously that, you know, when you... Um, you've never played anything like that before. The, the latter part, though, is it's pretty rare that anything really elaborate is played that has not been practiced. You know, other than maybe um, again a little bit of a variation on on materials that have been that have been practiced. So it's a it's an interesting dynamic because it's it's hard to tell sometimes where a lick ends and something that's true improvisation 
uh, begins. What What's true of most musicians, though, is like, so I, I'm going to go play in, the, in a jazz club tonight, sitting in with a as a soloist with a big band. I'm going to um, there's some stuff's going to come out that I've I've practiced before. Other stuff, maybe I've never played before, but I have no idea what any of that is. So none of it is planned in that sense. But that's why I think a better a better parallel is is like spoken language, where depending on the, the size of the structure, the larger the size of the structure, that is a sentence as opposed to a word or a paragraph as opposed to a sentence, the larger the structure, the more improvisation is actually taking place. So you don't see a lot of improv on the level of words, say in jazz. You know, it's very hard to put two or three notes together in a way that's never been done before. However, even an inexperienced musician can play eight measures that no one has ever played before, let alone an entire chorus. So that that's how I tend to think of it, is that the improvisation at a, at a more important level t- tends to take place on larger structures, very much like if we're, we're having a conversation, or right now I'm improvising, and, and you know, um, when you're, you may know what questions you're going to ask, but you're still improvising as you put them out there. And I think that's a very, right. very strong parallel to jazz improvisation. So here's a hypothetical question. Okay. Suppose like you're, <laughs> you're playing in a club uh, and you're playing seven nights in a row and you're just playing one you know, tune, for example, that you play seven nights in a row and you have a 32-bar solo. Um, so you play that 32-bar solo seven nights in a row, how different will it be from night to night? And do you try to consciously avoid what you did the previous night? Um, it's a great question. That's a tough question. Yeah, Sorry. no, it's no, it's a good question. And, and, and I think it really depends on the circumstance. And if it is, because it, it so say, yeah, say I was uh, playing, that, that probably most would most be like, it'd be most likely happen like in a big band setting where you're in, Someone in the trumpet section, you only get one solo because the solos are passed around and you got to 32 bars. So in that case, yeah, I would probably make a distinct attempt to play differently every time the, the, the tune came up uh, because it's so uh, kind of focused on one structure that I'm dealing with seven nights in a row. But that's that's also probably a fairly rare situation these days, you know, um, so it's not something that I've encountered more recently. Most of the time, I have done seven nights in a row, but it's usually going to be with a, a lot of more, a lot more tunes, and I'll be less conscious of what's happening in each individual one. So there might be a lot of repetition without me knowing. In one tune, though, thirty-two bars, you're probably likely to be very self-conscious about <laughs> what you've played, and um, so yeah, I'd probably even be practicing sometimes to say, let me find some different stuff that I can throw in there, so I can come up with something every 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 night. Uh, at least so I won't catch my, I don't want my fellow musicians catching me playing all the same stuff every night. You know, that would be, yeah, right, right. <laughs> could be embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In part two of our conversation, Rex first talks about his time playing with the rhythm and brass, but most of our discussion deals with his newly released book, 100 Days of Trumpet Practice, a book that can be a benefit to all instrumentalists. <laughs> 